Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, Judges, chapter 5, continued. Our subject is Judges, chapter 5, better known as the Song of Deborah. And we started studying it in earnest last week, and we ended up with verse 11. And we're going to start, uh, rather, we're going to continue to, to very carefully dissect this song because there's so much to be gleaned from it and it has so much to say for our modern lives and the age in which we live, whether as Jews or Gentiles. We still won't finish it today. Now, further, the era of the judges explains to us why there would then be the era of the kings to immediately follow it, and this song provides us with some important clues about the progress of Israel as both a spiritual and a national entity. Now, sort of a preface to our learning what we can take theologically and as life applications from the song of Deborah, I stress that we must first and foremost understand the very nature of the type of literature called song that makes up the entirety of Judges chapter 5. And that the nature is that significant liberties are taken with the words and the phrases in order that it makes the intended impact. Okay. Therefore, the point of a song, whether it's a song in the Bible or just a song composed for human entertainment like rock and roll, Okay. isn't necessarily to impart concise or terribly accurate information. Rather, it's for the authors to pour out their souls and to express their feelings. Okay. These feelings will center on current events in the culture they are living. It may center around things like war or a weather calamity or a few year era of relative peace or a national mood of darkness and despair, for example. Therefore, to understand a song, any song, means by definition that we must understand the context of the times and the society in which it was created. Because if we try to take the words, especially of a biblical song, fully literally, or we try to hold it above its era or its culture, we're going to miss the point. Or worse, we'll create some kind of misguided but far-reaching philosophy or all-encompassing doctrine and declare it as universal and rigid. Now what I'm getting at is that while the essence of the Song of Deborah is truthful, we need to be careful not to take every word as an accurate or balanced portrayal of a significant historical event. The Song of Deborah was made to commemorate and then to transmit to future generations the great and joyful, at least it was joyful to Israel, military victory of the northern tribes of Israel led by Deborah's sidekick, Barak, over the Canaanite coalition army led by Sisera on behalf of King Yabin of Hatzor. Well, we finished up last time by discussing an important theme that we find in the first third 
of the song of Deborah, which had to do with leadership. And we find that Deborah mostly blames the dire situation Israel found itself in, under the thumb of some oppressive Canaanites, on the lack of leadership from Israel's tribal chieftains and their elders. Thus she extols the virtues of herself, all right, and a handful of men who rose up to become new leaders in order to lead Israel out of their doldrums and out of their passivity in order to fight the good fight to restore their liberties and their proper relationship with the God of Israel, even though to do this was very dangerous and unpopular. Now it's important we understand that while the Lord has authorized the establishment of human governments, He also requires that those who lead them are to lead with a servant's heart. And they're to do it for the welfare of the people that they govern. But even then, it must not be accomplished by means of enforcing their own ideas of humanitarianism, ideologies, or or what to them seems like decent and good justice. Rather, it's the word of God. It's the Lord's direction that the leader is to fully submit to. And then the result of that obedience by the leader will be that the people are properly cared for and they will receive divine blessing. Now, we have in our times, I think, one of the greatest examples of probably one of the most well-meaning but misguided leaders in our own nation. Okay. Our president, who on the one hand seems sincerely connected to the God of Israel and his son Yeshua, on the other often prefers his own concepts of mercy and justice to the Lord's specific commands. Of course, the subject I'm referring to is Israel. And this administration's infamous roadmap to peace, whereby Israel is being relentlessly pressured to divide Jerusalem, to give up the Temple Mount, to carve off pieces of the Promised Land, and to hand them over to their enemies. Why would he do this? Because to his humanistic and geopolitical way of thinking, it will bring peace. It will bring brotherly love. It is a fair and balanced viewpoint for all parties involved. And therefore, it must be the right thing to do. See, this kind of leadership, though it sounds so good, was one of the many kinds that are condemned in the Bible. Because while it might seem that the actions of such a leader could bring a short-term earthly benefit, it also brings a longer-term and inescapable chastisement from Jehovah. Good intent and sincerity have never, it will never, trump obedience to the Lord. And such errors in our leaders can have long-reaching and devastating effects upon their people. Let's read some more of Judges chapter 5. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5. We're going to start on page 275 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. 
I'm going to read verses uh, 12 through 18. Judges chapter 5, 12 through 18. Awake! Awake, Deborah! Awake! Awake! Break into song! Arise, Barak! Lead away your captive son of Avinoam. Then a remnant of the nobles marched down. The people of Adonai marched down to me like warriors. From Ephraim came those rooted in Amalek. Behind you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Mahir, the commanders marched down. And from Zebulon, those holding the muster's staff. The princes of Yisachar were with Devorah. Yisachar, along with Barak, into the valley they rushed forth behind him. Among the divisions of Reuben, they made great resolutions in their hearts. But why did you stay at the pens for the sheep? And listen to the shepherd's flute playing for the flocks. Concerning the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. Now Gilead lives beyond the Jordan. Dan, why does he stay by the ships? Asher stayed by the sea, by the shore of the sea, remaining near its bays. The people of Zebulun risked their lives. Naphtali too, on the open heights. Now we could probably give this stanza of the Song of Deborah the name the roll call of the tribes. Because it begins to speak of each of the tribes' enthusiastic participation in Israel's liberation or their ambivalence and disinterest in joining in the holy war that the Lord has called for. And verse 12 has Deborah exhorting herself to awake and do what she must do. And that is to throw herself into this great event that she initiated as the Lord's earthly agent and now is to equally throw herself into commemorating the event through song. She also calls him Barak, we, we read, to lead away his prisoners of war in a victory procession. Now we see two roles explained here. Deborah was the prophet... Barak was the deliverer. As the prophet, Deborah represents God's presence, or at least his voice. Barak was the one, however, that was to act on the instructions of the Lord. Verse 13 gives us the response of Deborah's call to Israel for holy war. We're told that only a remnant of the noble ones, meaning the new leadership, and just some of the brave of the nation heeded the call, meaning that many just refused to serve. Apathy was the mood in Israel at this time. And the sense of verses 12 and 13 is that it would fall to the prophetess Deborah to shake the people of Israel out of their deep slumber, And verse 14 throws us now a king-sized curveball, if you pay attention to what it says. It says that Ephraim came to join the battle, but it says they were rooted in Amalek. Since there's no sense of it that this is a negative comment against Ephraim, then we have this problem of figuring out what, what this means. Remember, we're dealing with a song. Okay. Obviously, Ephraim was not genetically 
or nationally rooted in Amalek. Amalek is an age-old enemy of Israel that will only be destroyed once and for all when Messiah returns. So what's the idea here behind behind saying that the tribe of Ephraim was rooted in Amalek? Well, there are a few opinions floating around about how we ought to take this statement. Take this statement. One is that very possibly there was a very minor copyist error and that Amalek was accidentally substituted for Amek. And Amek means valley. Saying that Ephraim was rooted in, came from the valleys, is certainly true and it could fit. But Rashi says that the word translated as in, rooted in Amalek, ought to be more properly translated as against, rooted against Amalek. Thus we have Ephraim properly being defined as being against Amalek. Now, the the great Bible commentator from the early 20th century, Kiel, says that the translation of rooted in Amalek is fine as it is, is fine just as it is if we understand that Ephraim had taken much of their territory from the Amalekites. In other words, the area where Ephraim now lived was formerly called Amalek. Thus, it could be said they were rooted, they lived in an area that used to be governed by Amalek. The bottom line here is, for sure, we, this cannot mean that Ephraim had some sort of national or genetic connection to Amalek. Ephraim was Joshua's tribe. And it was also Deborah's tribe. So, it's no wonder it got top billing in this song. Now, the next part of this verse is that some from the tribe of Benjamin came to fight once enough people from the tribe of Ephraim committed to the battle. And a few interesting nuances to this piece of information shouldn't be ignored. The rabbis say that this is actually a prophetic pronouncement with the meaning that after Ephraim fights against the Canaanites, sometime later, so will Benjamin. And that that sometime later turned out to be about 1020 B.C. when King Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, fought to claim back more territory from the Canaanites. Another line of thought is that since Benjamin's territory was located south of Ephraim, Benjamin was physically behind Ephraim. I must tell you that my opinion is that we have an awful lot of speculation about what is meant to be a very simple statement. Ephraim committed first. It was probably the largest tribe at this time. And then Benjamin followed suit. Again, this is a song. And we're off the mark to try to tear apart every word or phrase trying to find something deeper. The words were chosen as much for how they sounded and how they rhymed as for what they meant. Now next we find that the military commanders of Machir, we're told, also decided to supply troops. This needn't confuse us. Saying Machir is merely referring to the tribe of Manasseh. 
but it was known by the name of Mahir in Deborah's day. See, Manesha, the founder of the tribe, had only one son. And that son's name was Mahir. Mahir, at one point, was the accepted tribal leader over Manesha. But in typical Middle Eastern culture, it was much more usual that a tribal leader would have many sons. Each would head up his own clan. The firstborn of the tribal founder would usually, by custom, eventually become the new leader over the tribe, although if another of the tribal leader's sons headed a clan that maybe became more powerful than that firstborn son's clan, the more powerful clan leader might take over. The point is that with a tribal founder having multiple sons that thus produced multiple clans, the identification of the tribe, Manesha in this case, would always remain the same, always be called by that name, even as each new successive leader took over. But, when only one son is produced, that son bears the status of being almost as great as the original tribal founder. So it wasn't uncommon in that era for a tribal name to actually change to bear the name of that only child when that child assumed leadership. Thus we find the tribe of Manesha is being called Mechir at this point in history and rather than its original name of Manesha. Now, I'm not trying to turn you into Bible historians. Okay? But this situation is a terrific example of how challenging the Bible can be unless you do your homework. If you'll recall, when Moses led Israel up to the Jordan River, about one half of the clans that formed the tribe of Manasseh didn't want to go into the Promised Land. They wanted to stay on the east bank of the river. Interestingly, it was Mahir, the tribal chief of Manasseh, plus some other number of clans who wanted to make their roots in the Transjordan. But Mahir was apparently okay with the idea of some of the other clans of his tribe, Manesha, crossing over the river and claiming territory over there too. I mean, for Mahir, the good news was he'd now preside over two large territories, both under the banner of his tribe. Now, one might think it wouldn't take too long before one of the clan leaders who occupied the western territorial area of, of Manesha would rise up and take a claim as the tribal leader of this group as opposed to the tribal leader over here. But apparently that didn't happen. What Deborah's song shows us is that not only perhaps 150 years after that scenario had not occurred, but also the use of the tribal name Manasseh actually became inferior to the name Makir. Now, in, it, it was these western clans, it was this group of Manasseh that came to fight with Deborah. Those on the eastern side had no interest in doing battle. Well, next, Zebulun is mentioned. And he is said to be holding the muster staff, 
or in some translations, the marshal's staff. Now, if you have a King James Version, it will say that Zebulun is holding the pen of the writer. Let's face it, not one of those translations is very much helping our figuring out what it means. Who are those who hold the muster's staff? Who are those who hold the pen of the writer? Okay. But I'm pretty confident that the King James Version is actually a little closer to the proper sense of it. we just got to flesh it out a little more. Now, what this phrase, if you take it literally, says is, the rod of they who handle the pen of the scribe. Now, that's a mouthful. The rod of they who handle the pen of a scribe. Now, a rod is what? It's usually a symbol of authority in the Bible and in ancient times. But a scribe was not a royal person with governing authority. Rather, the rod of a scribe is referring to his writing instrument, his pen. His pen was his rod. Very few people in the age of the judges could write. So a scribe, whose job it was to record the king's pronouncements, was held in very high esteem. However, many ancient rabbis say that this particular phrase is an idiom. In other words, saying the rod of the scribe is just a very lofty and poetic way of saying men who use a pen. And of course, we're dealing with a song here. So it's full of lofty words. Further, Zebulun was known to be heavily involved in trading. They were known as a merchant tribe. Merchants were among the few outside of actual scribes who used a pen because they had to record their accounts, their business accounts. However, the original Hebrew, interestingly, does not say that the men being referred to as coming to battle from Zebulun were actually scribes, sofertim. Rather, these particular men used the instrument that was the chief tool of a scribe. Thus, what this verse is actually referring to is that even merchants, men who were trained in buying and selling, not in warfare, rose up in religious fervor and responded to Deborah's call to arms and God's call to holy war. Well, verse 15 says that members of the tribe of Yisachar volunteered for this battle as well. Then we get to Reuben. Poor old Reuben. Up to this point in the roll call of the tribes, Everything has been of a positive nature. With Reuben, it all changes. And what a lesson for modern Jew and Christian is the tribe of Reubens and some of the other tribes' response. And let's pay close attention so we either don't make the same mistakes or, in our lives as believers, we're already doing what they did. So we repent and we turn back from it. What Reuben did was to have long and heartfelt discussions about 
what to do when the Lord called them to holy war. Do they join their brethren as they know they ought to on the opposite side of the Jordan as their leaders from the days of Moses promised they would do forever if they were allowed to settle in the Transjordan? Or do they view these battles against Sisera and Yavin as a foreign conflict that was simply none of their business because it wasn't in their own backyard? Here we also encounter another little translation problem. In the complete Jewish Bible, along with several other versions, it says in the second half of verse 15, take a look at it, it says, concerning the divisions of Reuben. The Hebrew word being translated in, as divisions is Pelagah. And Pelagah is a word that's always associated, any other place in the Bible, with waterways, like rivers and streams. It's usually meant to denote a place where the river divides or it branches off into rivulets or what we more commonly today might call brooks. The Hebrew sages are pretty unanimous that these, this section of Torah ought to be translated as among the brooks of Reuben they made great resolutions in their hearts. Okay. In other words, the territory occupied by Reuben was well known as being pretty well watered and it had many brooks and streams that crisscrossed the land. And the picture we're given, therefore, is, is, is of the nobles and the leaders of Reuben sitting around these beautiful places and discussing the whole matter in a sort of a defeatist or even a detached way. And they were gathering along these many pastoral watercourses of their territory and opining, why would they want to leave all of this for a holy war and risk so much? Answer, they didn't and they wouldn't. Instead, it says they stayed safe and sound, sitting by the many sheepfolds they had erected for their abundant flocks and listening to the lovely and enchanting musical notes coming from the flutes that shepherds would play to pass the time. Are you getting the picture here? This is a pretty derogatory remark about Reuben, whereby Deborah is basically boring on calling them disloyal cowards and traitors. At the least, Reuben was essentially disavowing their familial obligations and the past promises to Moses and to God to stand with their fellow Israelites against their common enemies. Verse 17 says that Gilead, meaning Gad, lives across the Jordan next to, next to Reuben, this area here. All right. In other words, it's now been established that all the Israelite tribes and their clans who lived separated from the promised land, all these over here, those who decided so many years earlier that they preferred the fertility and the peacefulness of the Transjordan to the promised land of God, 
these two and a half Israelite tribes of the Transjordan had begun this inevitable mental process of disassociating themselves from the nine and a half tribes who went forward into the promised land and live there now. And such a disassociation means they had no interest in coming to the aid of their Israelite brothers when they needed them the most. And especially when those two and a half tribes hoped that maybe all these troubles would just bypass them. Then the tribe of Dan is called on the carpet. Why Dan? The song of Deborah asks rhetorically, do you stay by the ships? Implying, of course, that the Danites are staying near their homes by the sea, meaning the Mediterranean, instead of coming to the aid of their brothers. Technically, Dan was located on the Mediterranean coast with a very good port at Joppa. But, you know, they didn't ever control much of the seacoast in their assigned territory for very long. Dan was known to have forged an alliance with the Phoenicians, more up north, who were also seafarers. And likely Dan was probably actually already on the move to relocate northwards by the time of Deborah. In any case, Dan certainly had a good political problem on their hands, some proportion. Their alliance with the Phoenicians was an important one to them. It was their bread and butter. And if they helped their Israelite Israelite brothers to fight against what would have been Canaanite allies of Phoenicia, well, you see the bind Dan found themselves in. It was the classic case of damned if you do, damned if you don't, to their minds. Of course, they were wrong. Their duty before God was to fight for their brothers, not to feather their nests with twigs from the world. Asher, who was also sea merchants, lived on the coast. They had their alliances too. Being merchants along the sea coast, it was big business. And by definition, that business was their was trading. And their trading partners would, of course, have been Gentiles that had alliances with many of the same Canaanite kings that did Dan and the Phoenicians. It was a very delicate situation. So Asher, along with Dan, decided in the end not to risk their tribal economic advantage by fighting alongside their brethren. Now, this stanza of the song ends the roll call of the tribes in verse 18 by explaining that as opposed to the wrong-minded decisions of Reuben, Gad, and the Transjordan portion of Manasseh, along with Dan and Asher, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali put their lives and their families' lives and their livelihoods on the line to answer Jehovah's call through his prophet Deborah. You know, if we were a smaller group, I might stop at this point and ask each and every one of you, put you on the spot, individually, what you're thinking right about now after hearing this lesson.
Here in Judges 5, we have the Lord wanting to continue His holy war to both liberate Israel from her enemies and to continue to establish His holy kingdom on earth in the promised land. Deborah and Barak were to be His vehicles for the moment to this end. Many from several of the twelve tribes answered that call and some entire tribes just sat on their hands and pretended not to notice. Interestingly, there's not even any mention of Judah or Simeon. I demonstrated in earlier lessons that already there had been established a a north versus south mentality among the twelve tribes. Judah and Simeon at this time were the south. Benjamin um, vacillated their loyalties back and forth because they were kind of located geographically between the north and the south. And the remaining tribes, including the ones in this story, were generally located up to the north. However, now we see that in addition to this north-south alignment, an east-west division had popped up. Those two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan didn't really see that they had any solid attachment or obligation to those nine and a half tribes living on the western side of the Jordan. You know, things change. Only about a century earlier from this time, the tribes located in the Transjordan were terribly concerned that they would be excluded from the commonwealth of Israel by those nine and a half tribes who went into Canaan. Now, they're actively separating themselves away. See, what we have here is the description of a terribly fractured Israel at the time of the judges. Just like we have a terribly fractured Christianity and equally fractured Judaism today, and I can also tell you that the reborn nation of Israel is also a very divided nation. Each group, denomination, sect, clan, tribe, cares only for their own interests. Oh, as like with Reuben, some of the other tribes had endless hand-wringing sessions about what their obligations ought to be to their brethren. You can bet There were those Levite priests and elders who tried with all of their might to remind the various Hebrew clan leaders of Moses and Joshua's instructions to stay true to God and to His commandments. And that meant they were to work together to continue to fight for the establishment of God's kingdom in the Promised Land. But the attitude for many of the people was, let somebody else do it. It seemed dangerous to their personal wealth and power, dangerous to their economy, dangerous to their mortal lives. For some, it was simply an interruption in their everyday comforts they just didn't want. And today, I'm going to ask you a tough question. If you're a Jew, why aren't you making plans to migrate to Israel to the promised land that God set apart just for you? If you're a Gentile Christian, why aren't you standing up for Yeshua? Standing up with Israel and boldly professing the universal sovereignty of the God of Israel? 
are you content to leave that to others? Whether Jew or Gentile Christian, what are you actively doing to help Israel fight to keep the holy land that God gave to them? That same holy land that isn't only the birthplace of our Savior, but it's where He's going to return. What are you doing beyond experiencing simple emotion or maybe guilt about hanging back from going to visit God's people or speaking out to some uninformed church on behalf of God's people or spending some of your resources or even sacrificially to directly comfort God's people? You see, Reuben discussed this and more among themselves. They wrestled with it earnestly in their hearts. But also they turned their eyes away and determined it was simply better to leave it at feeling badly than to disrupt their lives. Asher and Dan had valuable friendships and business partnerships with those who worshipped other gods. And those friendships were economically beneficial to them. So they refused to get involved. Gad and the portion of Manasseh that lived across that geographical boundary that served to separate them physically from their brethren didn't want to suffer their brethren's troubles. Yet they also didn't want to give up their common identity with them as Hebrews, as Israel. So they just kind of kept their distance hoping maybe they'd be left alone by the enemy and everything would just work out. You know, it's kind of interesting how all this turned out, by the way. Those Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River who sought to appease the enemy and kind of fly under the radar and try to avoid the fate of their brethren were the first to be scattered and assimilated by Israel's enemies in later times. Dan gave up. They vacated their allotted territory in the Promised Land altogether, and they moved north, where they also gave up their god, set up pagan calf worship, and eventually a small remnant wound up in North Africa. With the recent discovery of substantial remnants of each of the ten lost tribes of Israel in the last decade, the only tribe not yet found is Asher, who refused to get involved in the fight and rather chose to throw in their lot with their Gentile business partners. Asher preferred their profitable profitable ports and their serene beaches to the battlefields of God. Let's read just a little bit more and we'll call it a day. Let's read 19 through 22. Chapter 5. Kings came and they fought. Yes, the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they took no spoil of silver. They fought from heaven the stars in their courses. Yes, they fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away. That ancient river, the Kishon River. Oh, my soul. March on with strength. Then the Horses' hooves pounded the ground, their mighty steeds galloping at full speed. Verse 19 tells us about the Canaanite 
coalition army. Where it says they took no spoil of silver, it means these weren't mercenary soldiers, but rather they were loyal nationalist troops. They were Canaanites bent on ejecting and subjugating Israel. Verse 20 is a little difficult to deal with because it's hard to tell if the reference to the stars is meant to be spiritual or natural. That is, stars in heaven are often used in the Bible as a metaphor for angels. Lucifer the devil is called the brightest and most beautiful star. Thus this could mean that Deborah is saying that in parallel with the human battle on the ground, there was a spiritual battle in the heavenlies for Israel. That would certainly fall in line with Hebrew and biblical thinking. On the other hand, it could be referring to the weather, which favorably and unexpectedly altered the battle for Israel's sake. Either way, it's referring to something supernatural and divine. Verse 21 explains the involvement of the Kishon River in the war. That is, while it identifies the place where it all happened, it also explains that the river itself became the Lord's vehicle for giving victory to Israel. The river, we're told, swept them away, meaning they, the Canaanite forces. In other words, something caused a trickle of water that would have barely qualified as a brook in the summertime that this battle occurred to become a raging torrent that overflowed the Kishon River's banks and muddied the surrounding fields in every direction, thus rendering the fearsome chariots of the Canaanites useless. The river is spoken of as that ancient river, meaning that indeed it was a very well-known place that had seen countless generations and races of people live upon its banks and water their fields with its flow. What we're undoubtedly witnessing here is a flash flood. This is not an uncommon occurrence in Israel in the summer months. But what makes this so notable is its timing, of course. It occurred at the Lord's command and it was supernatural in its ferocity. And in poetic fashion, verse 22 speaks of the horses stamping as they slip and slide around in the mud, rearing up in panic as they pull in vain against those heavy iron chariots they are attached to, as those chariots became like anchors sinking deeper into the mud. Thus an army based on now immobilized chariots became easy prey for the Israelite army based on foot soldiers. And in chapter 4, if you recall, we read how some of the chariots were able to escape, but many more of them were abandoned. And the Canaanite soldiers, along with their leader, Sisra, ran off on foot to try and escape. But Israel chased them down and slaughtered them. The victory of the great divine warrior leader, Yehovah, was lopsided and complete on that auspicious day. We're going to finish this up next week and then move on into Judges chapter 6.